The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 6. Hello, and welcome to this weekly exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hamerty. Last week's episode was a comparatively action-free section in this first scene of this great play. Shakespeare is cramming information into it, building up suspense and intrigue as well as a political context for the whole world of the play. We learned that the Ghost King was notorious in single combat over the King of Norway and won a substantial area of land for Denmark as a result. Right now, it seems that Norway is gearing up to wage a new war to win those lands back, led by their dead king's son, Fordenbras. All of Denmark is preparing for the war, working night and day to be ready for the fray. We ended last week with Bernardo commenting that really it is not surprising that the ghost of the king himself should appear, he that was and is the question of these wars. He calls the ghost a portentous figure, and this prompts Horatio to say a good deal about portents. The following passage doesn't appear in the folio, but it does in the quarto, which is the main text that we are exploring for this podcast. Many editors maintain that Shakespeare planned to edit it out of the play, but there are some great reasons, as we will discuss, for including it. Horatio responds to Bernardo's comment about the ghost. A moat it is to trouble the mind's eye. This is, apparently, the first time in English that the phrase the mind's eye appears. Another one you didn't know came from Hamlet. The title character himself will get to use it further on in the play, but for now it is Horatio's. This is a very elegant little line in which Horatio is maybe dismissing the ghost's appearance uh, as something small, but simultaneously making reference to the Bible. In the Gospels of both Matthew and Luke, we get the message of how can you look at the speck of dust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? In older versions of the text, the word moat is used for that speck of dust, and Horatio now makes the point, but with reference to the mind's eye. It's Shakespeare being very classy and allowing Horatio a bit of a flourish of intelligence. He continues, In the most high and palmy state of Rome, a little ere the mightiest Julius fell, the grave stood tenantless, and the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets. It may seem a little odd for Horatio to bounce with no warning from the cold battlements of our Danish castle all the way to ancient Rome. But not necessarily. Shakespeare's company had very recently had a success with his play Julius Caesar, and so he could rely on his audience knowing at least a little about the mightiest Julius. If we bear in mind that this whole scene is a piece of exposition, setting up the world of the play and the story of it, then a reference to Julius Caesar who himself appears as a ghost in Shakespeare's play, might be setting us up to start wondering if maybe, somehow, ghost King Hamlet was assassinated. Bernardo has mentioned portents, and Horatio likewise describes how, the night before Caesar was killed, the graves stood tenantless, or empty, and the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets. This is a pretty scary image of shrouded corpses mumbling and squeaking on the Appian Way, and Horatio's point is that maybe this appearance by a dead figure is a sign of something terrible to come. Of course, it's also Shakespeare doing a bit of advertising for another play in the company's repertoire, reminding audiences of his extraordinary descriptions of the portents in ancient Rome during that other play. Caesar's wife Calpurnia has a nightmarish vision which includes a similar description of the ghosts returning the night before Caesar dies. Horatio is just warming up, 
and describe several further portents. As stars with trains of fire and dews of blood, disasters in the sun, and the moist star upon whose influence Neptune's empire stands, was sick almost to doomsday with eclipse. Stars with trains of fire are comets, which also appear in Calpurnia's vision as fierce fiery warriors, fighting a war in the clouds so terrible that it drizzled blood upon the capital. Horatio paraphrases here, but it's not unreasonable to assume that Shakespeare's audience might get the reference. At times like this, it would be so exciting to know who played which roles in Shakespeare's company. Wouldn't it be amazing if Horatio and Calpurnia were somehow played by the same actor, so that the echoes carried even more weight? Alas, we'll never necessarily know this, but it's nice to think about. Horatio's catalogue of visions continues with Disasters of the Sun, and here he's probably using the literal translation of disaster from the ancient Greek meaning bad star to imply an unfavourable astronomical aspect of the sun. I doubt that this is an assertion by Shakespeare that the sun is a star itself, since people were still being burned at the stake for such heretical ideas at the turn of the 17th century. But who knows? If it is, we've had references to Tycho Bray and Giordano Bruno in the first few minutes of this play, and that's fairly extraordinary. Next, Horatio mentions the moist star upon whose influence Neptune's empire stands. Not content with referring to the sun as a star, Shakespeare calls the moon one, too. Neptune was the Roman god of the sea, while the moon had been known since antiquity to have a pull on the oceans and an effect on the tides. The Arden Shakespeare third edition of Hamlet has a lovely note that the moon is called the governess of floods during a Midsummer Night's Dream, and that's too good a description not to mention. But this moist star, the moon, is sick almost to doomsday with eclipse. In other words, an eclipse so ghastly that it could have been the one announcing the end of the world. Horatio, or Shakespeare, here brings us back from ancient Rome to a more Christian landscape with the reminder of the apocalypse, or doomsday. The end of the world will be heralded by graves opening and terrible sights in the sky, after all, as mentioned in the Bible. Horatio continues, And e'en the like precurse of fierce events, as harbingers preceding still the fates and prologue to the omen coming on, have heaven and earth together demonstrated unto our climatures and countrymen. It's not just in ancient Rome or in descriptions of the end of the world that these kinds of events are seen, Horatio maintains. These harbingers have appeared, these sights have been shown by heaven and earth to people in this area, to people in Denmark. But before Horatio can get any further, or describe such things in more detail, he is interrupted. But soft, behold, lo, where it comes again! Aha, the ghost reappears. One very good reason for the inclusion of this passage, of Horatio deflecting our attention to other productions in the theatre, or other alarming moments in history, is to distract our attention. We think the characters are relaxing, whether or not they're actually sitting on the ground is still up for grabs. We think they've calmed down after the sight of the ghost. The trick is still in use in horror films today. Whenever the tension relaxes, that is when you should be on edge, because that is when things will go bump in the night. And sure enough, our ghost reappears here. Shakespeare was obviously happy with this effect and this manipulation of tension, since he has Banquo's ghost appear several times in his apparition scene in the Scottish play. Horatio is a little braver this time around, and decides to take on the spectre. I'll cross it, though it blast me. Stay, illusion. If thou hast any sound or use of voice, speak to me. 
if there be any good thing to be done, that may to thee do ease and grace to me, speak to me. Horatio is determined to cross the ghost's path, even though the ghost might destroy him or blast him to hell. He addresses the ghostly illusion, which is a fabulous way for Shakespeare to insist that we accept whatever theatrical form the ghost takes, and begs it to answer, if he has any kind of voice at all. He wonders if there might be any good deed that could give the ghost ease and release him from whatever turmoil that is causing him to haunt the place and grace to him. He then prays on any good nature that might be left in the dead king. If thou art privy to thy country's fate, which happily foreknowing may avoid, O speak. If the ghost can help Denmark in its hour of need, as it prepares for war, Horatio begs him to do so. Or if thou hast uphoarded in thy life extorted treasure in the womb of earth, for which they say your spirits oft walk in death, speak of it, stay and speak. Horatio is trying yet another tactic here, wondering if perhaps the ghost has left some loot buried somewhere. Ghosts were believed occasionally to return when things they had stolen, extorted treasure, remained buried or hidden, perhaps in the womb of earth. Horatio is really pushing it here, suggesting that the dead king's ghost cannot rest because he was a thief in life. The scene is reaching its dramatic peak, but before the ghost can reply, and we can imagine that perhaps he's getting annoyed at this young man asking so many questions, the cock crows, and he starts to retreat. And for what does happen, you'll have to join me next week. Until then, thank you for listening, and as ever, you can find show notes and links to previous episodes on the website thehamletpodcast.com. You can subscribe and download the show from wherever you like to get your podcasts, and I'll be back with the next instalment next Sunday. I hope you'll join me.